Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today on the podcast, Acharya Eric Spiegel senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, based here in New York, gives a talk about formalizing one's commitment to the Buddhist path, as well as what the teachings of the Buddha actually were. What were those foundational teachings? What was his life? And what does it mean to be a Buddhist, to be a follower of the teachings of the Buddha in modern society? This was a talk he gave at our weekly Dharma gathering a couple of weeks ago. Visit our website for more information about our weekly Dharma gatherings, which are happening at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York on Tuesday evenings. So, Eric Spiegel, becoming a Buddhist, are there some vows involved? There are two traditional Buddhist vows, which are called refuge. Is the first vow that people take when they become Buddhist. That's the vow of, that's like becoming a Buddhist. It's like getting bat mitzvahed by the Buddha, or I suppose baptized by the Buddha, except there's no water. Um, <laughs> and also, um, it's always done intentionally. It's not done for you by your parents. And the second vow is, comes later, and it's called the Bodhisattva vow. And tonight I'm just going to really talk about the first one, although I'll be happy to answer questions. Um, so I call this talk what the Buddha taught and I really was just thinking I'd like to go back to ancient India and discover that people were pretty much the same then as they are now with less technology but they had the best of everything that they could have just as we do and they had hopes and dreams and fears, just as we do. And people worried about money and, and love, just as we do. And people got sick or grew old and died, just as we do. And so um, life uh, has outer qualities have changed and many qualities have never changed and are always pretty much stable and you could say well there are the threats change or the things we enjoy change and the way we think about things change but then there are these big things of you know food and love and comfort and warmth and um, and our minds are always spinning around all of these issues of relationships and having enough or more, having more, whatever enough is, there's no definition. And, um, and generally, um, even when we're completely happy with what we have, we then think, well, what else could I have? Why doesn't, why don't I feel quite settled? Why do I need, why, 
you know, you marry the love of your life and then somehow it gets boring or you have the perfect job and then it gets too constraining or too demanding or not demanding enough or you buy beautiful furniture and then somehow it doesn't look right after a few years and why and you think if you just rearrange the furniture or get a new sofa or a new spouse or a new job (laughs) that then you would be able to relax and be happy and so the Buddha um, had all these experiences. He was a he was a extraordinary person, but also an ordinary person, and he had all these experiences. And he realized that there had to be a different, there had to be a way to transcend that constant sense of not being settled, not being at ease within your skin and within your being and um, so he went on a journey he grew up with enormous uh, wealth he grew up the son of a king and he grew up with tremendous wealth and richness and I literally the way I think of him is just that he had beautiful hair product like he like for 2600 years ago he probably had like the best oils and the best you know <clears throat> brushes and, and no air conditioning but but people to fan him and yet he understood that there was this disease and and so he went looking and um he found a teacher who or really like what was the kind of countercultural or new age spiritual tradition of that moment was the uh, idea that suffering, that the body, the physical body was the cause of suffering. And so if you could transcend your body. So he went on this journey of tremendous yogic asceticism you know, eating almost nothing, drinking almost nothing, deprived of sleep for six or seven years. I always think this is like the great Indian yogis who sleep on beds of nails and sleep. And so he'd be exposed to the elements and exposed to the harshness of heat and cold and rain and snow and sun. And he practiced meditation pretty similar to what we're doing, stillness meditation, and he transcended all of his teachers. And he could actually stay in meditation for days at a time. And then he would need to eat something, or the way I always think is he he would need to pee, right? That's really like the thing that always disrupts our attention. And so we're either hungry or we need to pee. So, uh, so uh, I don't mean to attribute my common human body associations with the great Buddha himself, but uh, <laughs> um, and he realized that as long as there was there, it wasn't a real. It was just still a temporary experience, as long as you had to still keep coming out of it. What what actually transcended that 
And so he eventually actually left his teachers and just went and created his own journey, which actually became very short at that point. Uh, he begged some food from a woman at the edge of the village, and she gave him some rice and yogurt and something and fruit, and so it was sort of nourishing and enriching. And then he gathered some grass and made a relatively comfortable seat as opposed to sitting on the hard ground. And instead of sitting under the harsh sun, he sat under the shade of a tree. So there's a sense of like having gone from one extreme of having everything that a person could have and then depriving oneself of absolutely everything, then this sort of middle path of of not too rich but relative some kind of comfort and taking care of oneself and then he sat down and he said I'm not going to move until I actually know what is and just like our minds go through all kinds of experiences his mind went through all kinds of experiences but he didn't move, he stayed, and all of his experiences, one after another, uh, fantasies of desire and getting caught up in anger and irritation, and then also pride. Pride came in the sense that he, like, what was he doing? Like, who cared what he was doing? And what was, was this just a waste of time, all of these years of practice? And at that moment, he, he realized that it absolutely had no matter that the only witness that was important was the earth itself. And so he did the famous mudra, or gesture of touching the earth and said, the earth is my witness. And at that moment, his mind opened and cleared and all of the attachment to pride and fixation uh, was um, uh, dissipated, like clouds, like fog lifting and sun coming through. And he realized what's called the awakened state. That's the meaning of the word Buddha, is awakened, the awakened one. So it's really important to note, it's like not the like really, really still one. Like, like even though we're practicing stillness meditation, that's not what he, it's, he'd already achieved that, but now Awakened is like illuminated, it's like lit up and brilliant and sense of out uh, energy flowing. And he began to walk and he ran into some people that he had known when he was practicing with the yogic tradition. And um, they could see there was a tremendous transformation and so they said, what is going on with you? They could see that he was completely un, 
you know, usually we're we're actually very preoccupied with how we're doing, all the different levels of how we're doing and how we're doing in the world and what people think of us and what we think of us and do they think what we think and do they see what we see. And uh, are they being appropriate? Are they treating us appropriately and with respect? Do they recognize our great humor and wisdom and intelligence and skillfulness and artistic uh, um, mastery and so on? And um, And then we get all caught up. And so he just started speaking to these people, these, and he gave what are called the, the, the first teaching that he gave, which is really the foundation teaching of Buddhism, is called the Four Noble Truths. I'm going to give it to you in shorthand. Um, he taught that Everyone has this, the way it's usually called is the truth of suffering. The first is called the truth of suffering, but the word suffering in Sanskrit is dukkha. And really it's that unsettled quality. It's like that sense of dis-ease that all, he said, all beings, not just humans, but like mice and bunny rabbits and great eagles and elephants have that they there's a continual sense of dis-ease that permeates because people think beings think that so the first that's the first teaching is that all that dis-ease is uh, pervasive and the second is that there's a cause and the cause is that we think we can hold on to things that can't be held on to, or we think that there's something out there that's going to satisfy our hunger or ours. And the, so that sense of grasping or of desire, of trying to bring things in or push them away, is... Um, will cause perpetual discord and unhappiness. So the first noble truth it's called is the tr truth of suffering or of dukkha or of disease. And the second is that it has an origin, which is grasping and fixation. And the third truth is simply that there's a way to transcend that. It's called, so they say, um, cessation of suffering. It just means that it doesn't have to be that way. Although everyone experiences it that way, it's actually not the rule. And the fourth thing he taught is that there's a path to cessation. And so the fourth noble truth is called the path. And then he, the rest of his life he taught the path. At that point, he taught a particular aspect of the path, which is called the Eightfold Path, eightfold path which is like how to live a decent life, how to live a life as a dignified, upstanding being where you don't cause a lot of harm, 
and you learn how to uh, not be bothered by all of the things that come at you. And so you kind of learn how to just take care of yourself in a very uh, simple and ecological way, you know. Uh, not a lot of waste, not a lot of waste of energy and emotion, and not a lot of waste of food and resources, but very simple life connected to the earth. But then as he went on through his life, he taught many, many other teachings, all of which are the path. And so, um, and his teachings, through his life, he walked, he was like an amazing being through the, like 40 years or 38 years from the time of his awakening until his death, uh, he walked all over northern India and taught, and people would just see him, and they would just become, they would just say, how can I become your follower? And he would say, if you want to become my follower, you have to take refuge. Refuge means, so we're in a time of, where we really, refugees are, constantly in the news the last several years, refugees from all different situations. So in this case, refugees from the suffering of being. It's not from Assad, it's not from the Taliban, it's not from, George, from Donald Trump, I forgot which horrible president we were living under. And, Um, um, it's just from refuge, become a refugee from eternal dis-ease and take refuge in these teachings that actually can show you a genuine way. And now there may be other ways, there are, certainly are other ways, and there have been other great masters throughout time. and. But this is the teachings of the Buddha, so it's not the teachings of Muhammad or of Jesus or of David and Moses and so on. So it's the teachings of the Buddha, and it's a very, but yet the teachings of Buddha have pervaded every culture on earth at this point. So they've traveled for most of the last 2,000 years, they really traveled all through Asia, Southeast Asia, China, so from India to Southeast Asia to China, then over the Korean Peninsula to Japan, and then into the Himalayas, and Tibet and Nepal and Bhutan, and, uh, and then in the last 60 years, as to Tibet, which had been one of the main real uh, uh, petri dishes, protected by the iron mountain walls of the Himalayas for 1,300 years. Uh, the modern age, the age of electronics and of automobiles and of airplanes and of Mao Zedong uh, penetrated Tibet. And so suddenly the teaching spilled out 
into the Western world like marbles, sort of like falling out of a basket. And teachers started moving around a lot, settled in Europe. And Chagim Trungpa Rinpoche was one of the first, the founder of Shambhala was one of the first teachers to come to North America in the fall of 1970 and establish the Shambhala community. And um, through all of those cultures, Japan, China, Korea, <clears throat> Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Tibet, and Europe and North America and South America and Africa at this point, um, the way that one becomes a Buddhist is through the vow of taking refuge. The vow is one of the most simple vows. The main point of the vow is that you know what you're doing, that you know what your intention is, and that you're not doing it um, foolishly. And then you say the words of the vow, which are very simple. I'll just tell you what they are. It's not a secret. It's I take refuge in the Buddha. So the Buddha in this case just represents the example of a human being who walked this path and showed a way, showed a way. And I take refuge in the Dharma, which are all of the teachings. The Dharma, it's like the Tao. It literally means the way or the law or it just means what is. And I take refuge in the Sangha, which means the community of practitioners who walk together, following, trying to find, trying to understand these teachings and support each other as they walk down the path. So in all traditions, of all Buddhist traditions, there's a form of taking refuge. That's the sort of entryway, the gateway. And then when you've taken refuge, you've taken on a particular view, which is um, really fivefold. Um, that you are going to make a genuine effort not to take the lives of other beings. Now, usually most of us don't go around killing people. But we kill animals or we kill insects all the time. Uh, and so, and sometimes that's completely un unavoidable, but very often it is avoidable. And we just, as powerful humans, we have the attitude that, oh, that's in our way, flack. <laughs> or <clears throat> so. As a Buddhist, you take a vow kind of to, uh, you're taking a vow to not, to really respect life, to respect the aspirations of others, even if you don't speak their ant language or their elephant language or their uh, striped bass language. And then you take a vow not to uh, take things that aren't yours. So to respect boundaries. And then you take a vow 
the vow is actually just the refuge vow, but within the refuge vow, there's these understandings that you're also saying, I won't take life, I won't take, I won't steal. Uh, Traditionally, we say, I'll abstain from lying, but really what that means is deception. So sometimes you could not lie, but be deceptive. So you should try, so we try to be true, not just not lie, but actually be true. And the fourth of the main ones is, um, traditionally they would say abstaining from sex, but a better interpretation for our time is probably abstaining from abusing our charisma, abusing our personal power, unless you feel like abstaining from sex for a long time, in which case that's fine. But anyway, I think the main point, as we've sort of been seeing very intensely demonstrated over the course of the last year and the last several weeks, is this idea of uh, that some people have more power than others. And that that doesn't make it, uh, that that's not a way to propagate a, a, a decent mind and a decent world. And so then the fifth one, so the first four are ki- not killing, stealing, lying, or uh, abusing your charisma or over others. And the fifth one is slightly different. It's not uh, taking intoxicants. And the reason for that is that if you get really drunk or stoned, then you'll do, then you'll kill, steal, lie, and abuse your power. So the fifth one is, is kind of like over, it's more like uh, support to the other four, but it's still a real thing. So in our culture, we usually mean that even if you get drunk, that whatever you do when you're drunk or stoned is actually fully your responsibility. And the line, oh, I was just drunk, has no value. You still have responsibility for everything that you do, so you should be aware of everything that you do. So uh, in a few weeks, I'll be giving the refuge vow, and I just... Was at, I was scheduled to do this talk, and I thought that I would just give a talk about these principles so that um, uh, to share them with people. People don't. A lot of people don't know what the refuge vow is, and if you're brand, if you're really new to practice, it's probably not the time to take a vow. Right? Vows are pretty significant. Usually, you know, you should know someone for at least three weeks before you take a vow to be with them. And so, um, I think we have three weeks. No. Um, so, um, so um, but in general, it's just something that's really, I think, important. This whole, this time is a time where people don't really know uh, what way to go. Every day when we turn on the news, it's very unclear which way, what the what the way is, and so the Dharma is really clear, uh, time tested, and people tested, that if, that you could practice and you could actually become 
a decent person, an uplifted person, an awakened person. So I would be happy to take any kind of questions or thoughts you have, including if any of the newer people have questions about their their meditation instruction or anything else that's related in some way. I would like like you to, if you would, uh, to speak to the idea or the label of... Uh, Buddhism as religion. Um, in your explanation of of the uh, refuge vows, and from what I've read of the book, which I'm enjoying, um, I don't see religion as part. Well, of that. there's no outer god. You could say there's an inner God. You know, you could say that one one develops a sense of uh, confidence in one's own nature, and that that nature has all of the vastness of wisdom and compassion. But there's most most of the like all of the traditions that uh, come from Abraham all have an outer god. Also, the Hindu tradition has many outer gods, right? And in Buddhism, there's no one who's going to save you except your own ability to uh, plow the ground of your own wild mind and emotions and to tame it and then enrich it fully. So it's, a, it's like a hard, like um, coming to a place and wanting to grow something, grow beautiful garden, uh, and feed your family and have beauty and nourishment, except that the ground is completely hard because it hasn't been worked with for a long, long time that we've never really tried to tame our mind, for the most part. It's not part of our culture. That we just, we have things we're trying to achieve, but they're all outside, you know, they're all like a, the perfect lover or spouse and the perfect job or career and some fame and recognition and a nice house. So we're always trying to, those are the, those are the things and so there's always this sense of movement and striving, trying to get and trying to get be recognized and established. And then this is really just saying, no, 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 you have to actually tame the ground of your mind and your heart. I find this kind of, this dialectic, it's really just kind of a semantic practice that I hear. Um, then Buddhism... It's not really a religion. It's a spiritual tradition. Okay. <laughs> I'm just curious about the refuge vows. I've never heard them before. But I'm sorry, what? I'm curious about the vows that uh, yes. uh, that's part of the refuge. Is that you vow to 
follow in the best, um, you know, to the best of your ability? Is that the vow or how, how is it exactly? Correct? Yeah, usually people who take refuge already are taking refuge to themselves and then the vow is that it's said out loud in front of people. So yes, it's about to, to try to follow the path, to study the Dharma, to, to, and to uh, associate with the Sangha, the community. Sangha, literally, and Sangha is a Sanskrit word, and I don't have a, definite, a translation of the Sanskrit, I should, but the Tibetan is uh, Gendon. In Tibetan, it's Sangha, the community is called Gendon, and uh, Ge means a virtue, and so it's uh, Gendon is the um, community that aspires those who aspire to virtue. So you associate yourself with those who aspire to virtue. And you well on the precepts as well, or the precepts are there. We don't formally give the precepts in Shambhala. If you want, you know, I can give them, but generally we don't. They're very, if you take precepts, then you have to uphold precepts. So sometimes in retreat programs, we'll give precepts. But usually people are working in their daily life. They're, it's not really that easy to uh, hold to them while you're also rushing around Manhattan trying to get on the subway and make a deal or whatever you have to do to survive. So I was thinking about the, the Four Noble Truths, especially attachment and aversion, and also being an entrepreneur or mm -hmm. being someone that's a business owner and someone that is living in 2018 and, and needs money, right? Sort of the balance between um, growing a business and also getting stuck in attachment mentality or I need more but like I don't know I'm just sort of thinking about that and your finance background and and how you might speak to growing a business or growing yourself as a entrepreneur but also not getting stuck in you know ignorance attachment and aversion mentality yeah, and creating yeah. dukkha yeah well there's two parts I think one is that you know yeah you get sucked in and so then you just need to like recognize it so just like in meditation practice, you know, we get completely sucked into our thoughts and our dreams, our daydreams, and then we recognize it. And they, sometimes they just dissolve, and other times they don't, they just sort of recede slightly and then come right back, you know. But in any case, we're actually breaking the chain of continual uh, creation by just noticing and shifting to the present and then the other thing then you're also then so that's like the ongoing moment to moment and day to day thing and then also you're trying to get somewhere you have a vision you want to create something you want to create you know hopefully your product isn't you know bullshit or and that you're, you're you know that um you're not it's not a ponzi scheme and and you're not trying to t just take, but you actually have something that you're, that's a value proposition, we say. And so, and so, and you believe in it and you have some confidence that whether, whether it's technology or a thing or 
art or or type you know that you're a teacher and you can are um, have wisdom that you can transmit to younger people or people who desire knowledge. So whatever your value proposition is, then you know. So you're trying to do that in the most wholesome way. You're trying to both get it out there and not uh, abuse people, not rip people off, and charge what is what people are willing to pay and what what you feel needs to be paid or what the value is, and um, hire people who have also good values, and so both can do the work needed and also uh, share some kind of inner value set, maybe not the same ones, but a sense of uh, uh, decency and uh, awareness of others. And so you're, you know, and I mean, obviously, sometimes you have to fire people and sometimes you have to say, no, I'm not going to pay for that because you didn't deliver. So there's harsh realities the Buddha, and the time of the Buddha, people always, when they became his students, he asked them to leave their attachments, to leave their family and their place in the world. So Brahmins and outcasts would all leave their place and uh, create their own robes, made of gathered rags, discarded rags, and shave their heads so if they had beautiful hair or if they had lice in their hair, either way, or if they were men or women. So it's really way, way avant, you know. Men, women, high and low, all dressed the same, ate the same, had the same non-hairdo, uh, walked down the road and begged and did their meditation practice and retreat and followed the same instructions. And, and uh, so that was fine. And that's how the Buddhist tradition has been for the last 2,500 years. And now we're in the, this century. And so that's, the, that's really the essence of Shambhala is that can we do this in this, how to, how to actually apply these teachings to the, chaos of, of modern earth. It's not even like East versus West anymore. It's really just modern. It's everywhere. Or if it's China or if it's Malaysia or if it's Bhutan, it's pretty much modern everywhere. You were talking about taming our minds and then at one point you said, and hearts. <laughs> and I'm here today and tonight feeling very unsettled about a matter of the heart. And I wondered if you could speak to, and I live in my mind. I'm a thinker and a writer. And, <laughs> um, and I wonder if you could speak to taming the heart as well as taming the mind and those two, the way those two things relate. Well, culturally, at this point, most of us are much more in our mind than in our heart, that we're very disconnected from uh, the earth realities of 
birth and death and uh, we don't really see children or adults when they're 13 or 14 now and you know there's no kind of um, and they're worrying about aging by the time they're 23 or something you know and so um, there's a real sense of uh, that we we think we can, and it's part of the technology age, is that we think we can figure things out with our head, that we can solve all the problems. And so the real uh, task of a spiritual tradition is to get us uh, to rebalance, not to X this one out and just promote this part, the heart part, but to rebalance between these two. So there's both intelligence and feeling. And then the problem is that we feel and we become really, we're so used to being able to protect ourselves and be able to like take care of the, get our, get our life just the way we want it, at least so that we won't have any like incoming missiles you know, from the outer world, like, you know, so even if it's, even if you have a small apartment, at least you know it's your apartment and where you live and and that the radiator does, makes these noise and you're familiar with it. And so, um, uh, and then emotions come in and they're not, they can't actually be, uh, uh, <clears throat> rationalized way, you know, you can't just like say, no, 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 you stay over there, you're like, you have, uh, you, I have 36 minutes for sex and romance or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, so for, and people come in and then suddenly we start to lose our ground in terms of like the protections that we've put up. So I think it's really a matter of like learning how to be open and be willing to be hurt or touched or loved. I think that in this, for some reason, that's really a feature of this current moment is that we've apt it away, you know, that we think that everything that all of our relationships, not all, but many of them are so transactional that we think we can just meet someone who fits certain description and, and is, you know, and if they don't, if they step out of those boundaries, either they X us out or we X them out and just delete, block, you know, <laughs> and so, Obviously, I don't have any experience in this field, but <laughs> so I think the thing is being willing to feel your feelings. It's really terrible, terrifying, terrifying. And to be able to be hurt or sad and still be present and there like not realize that, oh, I'm still going to be there. Distance, geographical distance is very hard because something that starts in the heart or is grounded in the heart 
when you're apart. It's just you're in your head. Yes. And it's very hard. But you know, when we were teenagers, you know, geographical distance was just like that they hadn't called today, you know, that, that you don't know when you're waiting, you have, you're thinking of them and they haven't called, and you call and they're not home, and people didn't have answering machines when 30 years ago, 25 years ago, so... Um, can you imagine? So, um, so distance has always been a part of relationship, you know, that you're not, unless you live in a small town and you move in with your, you move in with your wife's parents and, you know, then everyone's like, and, and, you're, and you work for your wife's father or whatever, you know, or whatever, you know, like, which is actually what my parents did, you know, my parents moved in with their, with my mother's parents on East 3rd Street and my father for the first 10 years till the third child was born, uh, worked for my fa mother's father on Clinton Street. <laughs> so, <laughs> but for most of us, there's always distance. You know, cross country is different, or across ocean is different. But there's always that thing of well, all day long, two people have different things in front of them and are thinking different things and going, and then how much are they actually coming back together and how much are they able to synchronize when they do? And <clears throat> it's hard enough to balance, be in balance with yourself, let alone in balance with another person who's having trouble being in balance with themselves. I think the real, from my point of view, the real thing is to not that we're very, very protective of our emotions and to learn how to be more open to and accommodating of them, not just afraid of being hurt, but kind of embracing the rawness of experience. Sorry. <laughs> no good news there. <laughs> Hi. And we you're very we've met before, yes. You're, you're, yes. Yeah. I uh received the refuge bell from you oh. last year. Oh yes, and, okay. Hi. Um I <clears throat> I have been um, struggling a little, no, a lot. I've been struggling a lot with um, with this idea of being in the world. Like I'm in education and I'm out there, and I um, I do things sometimes that causes pain. Teachers or principals or students, you know. And um, usually the next day, I can imagine how I could have handled that differently and. Um, it's too late, but you know, I can, and, um, 
that level of vulnerability of um, sort of watching how your mind works out there in the world and it's it's um, it's kind of hard and. The, this idea of sangha, like I come here on Tuesday nights and I often leave with something that um, helps to settle me a little more. But I don't, I don't have a culture of a, a, a group of friends who are all Buddhist. And so when those things happen, I don't feel like I have a sangha. Like I want to call a friend and say, um, I, I might call this guy right here because it sounds like he's having this issue at, like, with this work too, you know, like, like um, am I, so, you know, I come to Dharma talks and I go to weekends and I meditate, you know, for two weeks, like karma joling, but the day to day, like, <clears throat> like I, I. Well, do you meet people at weekends? Maybe you could say, can we get dinner? Yeah, maybe so. Or at yeah. classes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Do people do that? Yeah, I think that's how Sangha becomes Sangha, yeah. yeah. Yeah, is that you actually make connections. And so, and, and obviously, you know, you have to extend out. It's the same. You have to be. But, um, I'm sh you know, I'm in this very protected position of being the teacher. So it doesn't come across, but in my personal life, I'm really very shy, except I've kind of figured out I can actually extend out. But my nature is extreme shyness, and I live in the country by myself, so I live, I live in, I can, when I'm not in the city, I could not see people for days at a time by, just by virtue of living my own life, you know? <laughs> and cooking for myself and having taken care of my property and so um um but I, but sometimes you just have to say hi how are you and you know would you like to get dinner sometime and The other thing is, um, like, to not be too hard on yourself. Like, Maitri, which means loving kindness, is really um, a key element of, like, uh, that it's once you start seeing yourself clear, more clearly, one of the first things that happens is horror. <laughs> that you see how uh uh, unskilled you are and unsophisticated and how much you don't live up to your ideals and so then really it's it's not that you are worse now than you were you're better now than you were but you see it's and in Trungpa Rinpoche called it like the pain of an eyelash falling onto your eye Right? It's a tiny thing, but all of a sudden you're so sensitive. So then it's really just the thing of like being gentle with yourself and being willing to smile at your and appreciate that things are changing. Your relationship to the phenomenal world is shifting through practice. And, and then... And then also sometimes you can go, and I'm, since I'm in a very forward front, you know, out there position, I often do this as 
I go and I say, I write an email or I go and I say, pick up the phone, hi, you know that thing, I, I really, I felt like I did this blah blah, you know, a lot of times I feel like I take up, I get off the chair and I'm sitting with friends and I'm still teaching, which isn't really called friendship, so. So, thank you all for coming this evening, and I'll be outside. We always have a little food, and I'll hang out for a while and be around to talk. Thank you, Acharya. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to the people who attended that talk and asked some great questions. Visit our website, ny.chambala.org for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Get to know your fellow meditators. It's a good time. Okay. Later.